Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ruth, the fourth chapter, reading from verse 18 to the end of the book. Let's all give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Ruth, chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nachshon, Nachshon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would sweeten these verses in our hearts and in our minds, that through them we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. Praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, this morning we come to the end of our study of the book of Ruth. A book that traces the story of Naomi. It traces her story from her emptiness to her fullness. We've looked at what it's like to experience loss And then to begin to return to fullness after that loss. We've looked at how through gathering crops in the field, Ruth and Naomi were gathering hope in the Lord their God. How they began to experience a reversal of their circumstances through the righteous acts of people like Ruth and Boaz. And then how they experienced God's blessing because uh, God provided a kinsman redeemer for them. So we come to our final text, a genealogy. Uh, Why end with a genealogy? And why choose as a text for a sermon uh, a genealogy? This is a, a nice short one. It wasn't, it's not a genealogy, but in... Um, In Ezra chapter 2, there are 70 verses of names. And I preached on that text once in California when a PCA congregation was uh, moving to full status from being a mission church. And in those kinds of services, you have a lot of participation by different people in the presbytery. And there was a ruling elder who was assigned the reading of the scripture. And he didn't know what the scripture text was until he got to the service. Um, This is why, among other reasons, we study Hebrew, so that when you come to these long lists of names, you can pronounce them. But uh, Genesis chapter 5, it's a genealogy. Genesis chapter 10 is a genealogy. The Bible starts, the Old Testament, the first book in the Old Testament starts with genealogy. In the Hebrew Bible, the last book is not Malachi. The last book is Chronicles. And the first nine chapters of Chronicles is a long genealogy. Well, it's interesting that the 
only book in the Old Testament to start with a genealogy is the last book. And isn't it interesting that the only book in the New Testament that starts with a genealogy is the first book? Matthew starts with a genealogy. And uh, we could talk a lot about different things with regard to genealogies, but just from Matthew, think about this. Matthew's genealogy from Abraham to Jesus is intentionally broken up into three sections. And each of those sections has precisely 14 generations. Now, we wonder why 14. Partly, we wonder that because to get to that 14, in a couple of those sections, people are dropped out and some people are counted twice to make the 14s work. And we say, oh, that sounds a little fishy. Well, it might sound fishy to us because we are so given to mathematical and scientific precision that we would think if somebody left something out, they made a mistake. Not so in the ancient world. They weren't creating these genealogies to give us a mathematically precise accounting of all of the generations. They were shaping these genealogies to teach us theology. So Matthew's three sections, each with 14. Why? Well, it's interesting that King David is the 14th name in the genealogy. And when we use the letters of King David's name to come up with a number, his name equals 14. Remember, ancients didn't have Arabic numbers. They used the letters of the alphabet. And David starts with a D, which is, a, which is the fourth letter, and then a V, which is the sixth letter, so that's 10, and then it has another D at the end, that's 14. Isn't it interesting? He's the 14th name, his name equals 14, and there are three sections in the genealogy, each with 14 generations. Why? The author, Matthew, wants us to focus on David because the whole genealogy is all about who the true David is. And the true David is the very last person listed, Jesus. It's also interesting that Chronicles, the genealogy in Chronicles that ends the Old Testament, it's asking the question, who's the true David? And the New Testament comes with its answer, the true David, the true 14, is Jesus. I just give this as an illustration to show you that there are genealogies, they are important in the Old Testament, they play a role, but they're not there just for a a recounting of genealogical interest, they're there for theological reasons. And so when we come to our genealogy, our genealogy has ten people in it. And it's interesting that Boaz, our hero, is number seven. Seven is a number of perfection. And who is the tenth? Another number of completion. The tenth is David. And as we're going to see, it kind of didn't have to be that way. Uh, we're going to ask a question in a moment as to why it, the, this genealogy is shaped this particular way. But clearly, the author wants us to focus on the hero, number seven, Boaz, and the completion of God's work at this stage in the history of redemption, and that is David, number 10. So, I just, that's just kind of a little, uh, okay, 
Clayton was giving a justification this morning for the uh, search committee in the process. That's just kind of like my little justification for why I'm preaching on a genealogy. It's there. It must be there for a reason. I've entitled this sermon, Looking Backward and Looking Forward, or Looking Back and Looking Ahead, because that's what the Holy Spirit invites us to do through this genealogy. Uh, We're going to do two things, two parts. We're going to look back, and we're going to look ahead. Uh, First point, you have a history. Let's follow the invitation of this genealogy, which asks us to look back uh, in our history. And here's my question. Why start with Perez and not start with Judah? Uh, Remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the three big well-known patriarchs. With Abraham, the covenant line continues to get smaller. With with Isaac, it gets smaller. But as soon as we come to Jacob, it goes larger into the 12 tribes. One of those tribes is Judah, the grandest tribe. So you would think if this genealogy were just interested in, in personages for no good reason other than genealogy, we would start with the leader of this segment of the family. We would start with Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. But the genealogy doesn't. The genealogy starts with one of his sons, Perez. Why start with this relatively unknown son, Perez, instead of starting with the well-known Judah? Well, you might say it's because the author wanted to have Boaz as the seventh and David as the tenth, and the only way to do that is to start with Perez. Except for having looked at Matthew, we know very well that the author could have started with Judah, just dropped somebody out, and he still gets his seven and ten. That's just the way ancients did things. It's kind of like quoting. Um, if, if you're a student of mine and you're writing a paper and you're quoting a source, if that source has a typographical error in it, a misspelling, your responsibility in our culture is to pass that error on, pass that misspelling on, and after the misspelled word in parenthesis to put sick, S-I-C. That's telling me that you didn't make the mistake it's in the original. When In our culture, when it comes to quoting, we have such a focus on precision that we even want to pass on a mistake in the quotation, and we have a system for telling the professor that the mistake is in the original. It's not your mistake as a student. That's how focused we are on precision. The ancients didn't do that. When the ancients quoted somebody, they never did what we call verbatim quoting. They always did what we call giving the gist. That's why if you read uh, what Jesus said in Matthew and what re- you read what Jesus said on that, in that same situation in Luke, the words are not, they simply are not identical. Because Matthew's quoting Jesus, but he's giving the gist. And Luke is quoting Jesus, but he's giving the gist. And you can give the gist accurately. This doesn't have anything to do with the accuracy of the Bible or the truthfulness of the Bible. It's just becoming aware that ancient culture doesn't do it the way we do it. 
And it, it is so easy for us to think that the way we do it is the blank way. The right way. You know, as a Hebrew teacher... I'm often talking to uh, students about what's the biggest challenge in, um, in learning Hebrew. And here's what they typically say. The biggest challenge is that Hebrew goes the wrong way. <laughs> that's, that's what they say. Really? There's like a God-ordained way for us to write? Not really. I, it's just an illustration of how easy it is for us to think that our way is the the right way, when we don't really realize that our way is just a way. Now, no, I have not become an absolute relativist. There is right and wrong, but not everything is a matter of right and wrong. The direction that we write is not a question of right and wrong. Ancient Greeks, you know how they used to write? It was called boustrophodon. That's the way an ox plows. They would write this way, and they would say, why waste all that time jumping back over here? So they would write this way, and then this way, and then this way, and then this way. And you would just read it. I mean, just, just kind of the way your eye goes, right? Make, it's totally efficient. Why we ever gave it up, I don't know. Okay. Why start with Perez? That's my question. Let me give you a couple of insights here. First of all, Perez was born in a situation that matches in so many ways the situation in the story of Ruth. For example, Perez was the eldest son of a childless widow, just like Obed, who was born to Naomi, a childless widow. We see these analogies between Obed and Perez. Perez was the one who was going to continue an embattled line. The whole line of Judah was at stake. It was possible that there would be no continuation of the line of Judah, and then Perez is born, and through Perez, God preserves the line. Sound familiar? The line of Elimelech and Naomi is almost gone. It's possible that that line will come to nothing. And then God intervenes. And there's a son born to Naomi named Obed. And Obed is the one through whom God preserves the embattled line. There are these connections between the story of Ruth and Perez that make sense as to why we're starting with Perez. But think about this also. Remember, Perez is the son of Judah. Before Perez was born, Judah had three other sons. His first two, one's name was Ur, one's name was Onan. There's going to be a quiz at the end of the sermon on these names. Both of these sons died childless under the judgment of God. Just like Machlon and Kilion sons of Elimelech, died childless in Moab under the judgment of God. There was a third son, Shelah. This third son refused to take care of his covenant Levite responsibility and father a child with a dead brother's wife. He's just like, remember our Mr. No-Name? 
the other kinsman redeemer who refused to carry out his covenant responsibility and father a child through Ruth for Naomi. More connections between Perez and our story. One more. Perez's mother, Tamar, was a prostitute. We've talked about that. Like Ruth was a Moabite. The Bible says the earnings of a prostitute are not permitted to come into the house of God. The Bible says a Moabite is not permitted to come into the house of God. Why start with Perez? Because Perez reminds us that we have a history. Your history, like the history of Obed, your history very well may have skeletons. One of the reasons why none of us want to run for public office (laughs) is because those skeletons will be revealed. Maybe those skeletons aren't in your life. Maybe those skeletons are in your parents' lives or in your grandparents' lives. I have a friend named Frank James. Yes, he is related to Frank and Jesse James. He's a Texan. You know Frank? And uh, Frank has a very unseemly family past uh, in one way or another. There are skeletons in the closet. We all have this dark side of our history. You may have skeletons in your own experience or deeper in your family, but nonetheless, your history is important. If we cut ourselves off from our history, if we cut off our history, We are cutting off our identity to one degree or another, and we are losing ourselves. How does this apply? Well, we could apply this in a variety of ways. I'm not going to apply it to the preservation of traditional worship, because I would be preaching to the choir. But I will say one of the reasons why I like to come to preach here is because I really enjoy the worship at the church. And, uh, but enough said about that. There are a variety of ways that we can think about this with regard to our social setting. Uh, one thing that we could talk about is racism. There is racism not only in our culture in general, I'm talking about in the church there is racism. Racism is part of the skeletons that are in our closet. They are there. We cannot ignore this skeleton. It will not just go away. We can't cut ourselves off from it and pretend that it is not there because we are doing something to lose part of our own identity. There's much more that we could say. I'm just trying to kind of whet your appetite for seeing the ways in which we need to reflect on the fact that that the genealogy starts with Perez. 
It starts with the skeletons that are in our closet. Uh, I noticed that it was just recently Columbus Day. And that there were parts of our, our culture that didn't celebrate Columbus Day. They celebrated Native American Day instead. Now, I'm, I would have no objection. I would welcome the adding of Native American Day because it's part of our history. But do we really want to quit celebrating Columbus Day? Now, Columbus was not necessarily a good guy, was he? And when the, when the Europeans came into uh, the States, they didn't treat Native Americans very well all the time, did they? It's part of our history. It's part of who we are. But it is part of who we are. And if we cut ourselves off from the dark side of who we are, we are losing part of our identity. This doesn't mean that we don't repent. This doesn't mean that we don't seek for social change. Uh, this doesn't mean that we don't seek for change in the church. It does mean that we have to realize that our father is Perez. That there is darkness in the back of who we are. Yes, as the people of God, as Presbyterians, as Orthodox, Bible-believing, Presbyterians. Our, our chancellor spoke in chapel this week. And um, he talked a little bit about this from a completely different vantage point. But he said, you know, he said years ago he was first teaching at RTS in Jackson, Mississippi. He said, I grew up in Mississippi. He said, I'm teaching uh, theology at Mississippi, in Mississippi. My first class is on ethics. And he said, in teaching this class on ethics, it never entered my mind that I should teach on the topic of racism. He said, how could that be? Of course, now he's looking back 30, 40 years later from a, you might say, a more enlightened social time when we're more willing to embrace this. He apologized to the students for the implicit racism that was built in. And I'm only using these as examples. The, the, we have to be willing to be open to seeing the skeletons in our closet. That's why this genealogy starts where it does with Perez. Boo Perez, and not Judah, yea Judah. The Bible is so honest that the Holy Spirit invites us to grow in our honesty as well. We might think about applying this to our own selves. How many of us have these things that we have done in our own past, in one way or another? People that we have hurt, people that have hurt us. Uh, the things that are so painful. We, we certainly want to appreciate the good that we have experienced, but we must also at the same time be willing to embrace all of the darkness that is in the back of our lives because it's part of who we are. We don't want to stay there. We don't want to be stuck there. We want to move on from there, but we have to be willing to embrace the Perez. You have a history. 
Your history may have its skeletons, but nonetheless, your history is important. While celebrating the light, we've got to be willing to embrace the darkness as well. So that's why start with Perez. The next question is, why end with David? The genealogy could have continued because David had descendants who had descendants who had descendants. Why stop with David? Let's look forward to the future. And the reason why the narrator stops with David is to teach you that you have a story. A story that goes from the past into your future. This genealogy, uh, like the last two years and the search committee, this genealogy demonstrates God's faithfulness. It was through God's faithfulness that this widowed woman named Naomi, not only widowed, but also deprived of her two male sons. Remember, this woman who would have, in our culture, been in her 70s with no medical insurance, no government supplements, no 401k, no marketable skills, no house to live in. She would have been what we called in Washington, D.C. back in the day, she would have been a bag lady. Why did we call them bag ladies? Because they were ladies and all of their possessions were in what they could carry in one bag. That was Naomi. But through the faithful love of God, Naomi survived. She made it through that deepest, darkest valley. But through God's faithfulness, Naomi didn't just survive. She thrived. She flourished. She was filled to overflowing. She was filled with grain. She was filled with a child. She was filled with the goodness of God in her life. Because God was faithful, in spite of all the skeletons that were back there, because God was faithful, Naomi survived and flourished. Why does this story end With David, because it's a testimony to the faithfulness of God. And in God's good providence, your story, for example, of a search committee is going to end in David. It's going to end by showing you eventually how God has been faithful all along the way, not only so that you can survive the time without a pastor, but that through it you might thrive and you might flourish. So the genealogy demonstrates God's faithfulness. And you know what's remarkable? While Naomi got to see a little bit of it, she never really understood her story. Naomi, deprived of absolutely everything, the great-grandmother of King David. And were it not through her being stripped of everything, humanly speaking, who would not have been born? David would not have been born. 
Because David comes from the matching up of chromosomes that bring Ruth into the picture. And had Naomi not lost her husband, had Naomi not lost her two sons, had she not been stripped of any, all of that, there wouldn't have been the Ruth. Ruth wouldn't have married Boaz. David wouldn't have been born. It is so easy for us when we are, a la Psalm 23, in the darkest of valleys. Oh, like in, the, in year two of a search committee. It's easy when we are there not to be able to see what God is doing. That's what I mean by you have a story. This genealogy ends with David because it's saying there's a story here. And it's a story that has a good ending. His name is David. You know, there are, there are things that have happened in my past. And I wish they hadn't have happened. But I can see the goodness of God now. And how God has turned those negative things into positive. Uh, one example. My third son. Uh, my third son went to his first, well, he went to summer college, and then he went to his first full semester, and he came back at Thanksgiving with the good news that he probably wasn't going to have earned any credit. So we said, we think maybe we ought to try something other than college after Christmas. And that's when he went into the Air Force. And he now is fluent in Mandarin. He's married to a woman who's fluent in Mandarin. They have a beautiful child. Uh, my daughter-in-law is becoming an officer. Mark is moving toward the finishing of his bachelor's degree in officer training school eventually. I mean, these kids, they live in a nicer home than I do. They drive nicer cars than I do. God has just blessed them. And none of that would have happened had Mark not bombed his first semester. So his bombing his first semester in undergrad, was that a bad thing or was that a good thing? Yes, it was a bad thing and it was a painful thing. But who knew what God was going to do? I ha- you have those kinds of things, don't you? Where you can see those bad things that happen and how God has brought good. And we rejoice in that. But if you're like me, you also have those bad things that have happened. And you don't see any good that has come out of it. Because you're not at David yet. You're still back at Perez. And the only thing that you can see is how dark and how deep the valley is. Why stop this story? Why end it with a genealogy? It's because God loves you. And he wants you to know that you not only have a history, those skeletons in the closet, but you've got a story. God is at work. And we often can't see who is the David that is going to come out of your darkness. We just don't know. And you, you might pass from this life never seeing it. Uh, Naomi died never knowing that in three more generations David was going to come from her. Wow. Faith. You're called to walk by faith. Not by sight. Believing that God is faithful. And so even when you cannot see in your mind's eye the good that can possibly come out, 
You believe with all of your heart that God works in all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so God is so good to us that he gives us a genealogy to remind us of how faithful he is to us and how we have a story and how he will be bringing good out of everything that we have experienced. And so the genealogy not only demonstrates God's faithfulness, but it also calls you to faith. It calls you to faithfulness. It calls you to to faith, to belief in a God who is faithful. It calls you to be faithful in the face of the skeletons. Flourishing in spite of trauma. Remember, at the very beginning, the book of Ruth starts in the days when the judges judged. Oh, if there were ever dark days in the history of Israel, it's the days when the judges judged. And if you doubt me, just go home this afternoon and read Judges 17, 18, 19, and 20. I guarantee you, you will read some of the most horrific stuff that the people of God have ever done. Dark. Not what was done to them, but what they were doing. Chaos in worship, chaos in morality. In that situation, God was so faithful that he took Naomi and he brought about King David through her. Flourishing in spite of trauma by just doing the next thing. In spite of all that trauma that Naomi had experienced, she took the next step. And she started to return. And then she took another step. And she was able to gather a little bit of hope. And then she took one more step. And there was the beginning of the reversal of her circumstances. She took one more step, not knowing where it would lead. And there was redemption and the birth of a son. Sometimes the only thing we can do is take one step because we don't know what lies after that. God just calls you to have faith in him and to be faithful by doing whatever the next thing is that he puts in front of you. So just to wrap this up, God's faithfulness and the faith and faithfulness of people like Boaz and Ruth resulted in King David. God's faithfulness and the the faith and faithfulness of people like Boaz and Ruth ultimately, many generations later, resulted in Jesus. And then when we go back to Matthew where we started and we look at Jesus' genealogy, uh, yes, There is this fellow in Jesus' genealogy named Perez, son of the prostitute Tamar. There is Rahab, another harlot from the city of Jericho. There is Ruth, a Moabitess who was never to have been allowed into the family of God. There was Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, through David's illicit affair. In Jesus' family tree, 
there are some skeletons. And if there are skeletons in Jesus' family tree, we should be surprised that there are skeletons in ours. I think not. It's because of those skeletons that Jesus came. If we had no skeletons, he didn't need to come. There was nothing to redeem. There was nothing to fix. But because he has come, full redemption has come. How is it that we can embrace our skeletons? It's because Jesus has paid the penalty for them and we're no longer guilty. And it's because Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit to give us the power to change so that we don't repeat the past and produce more of those skeletons for our descendants. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's why the author of Ruth said, I think I'm going to end with a genealogy to give my people hope, to stir up within them faith and faithfulness. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God can do in you and for you and through you the same kind of thing that he did in, for, and through this childless widow named Naomi. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would give us the honesty that we need to see those things in our past, which we need to embrace, those things we need to confess, those things we need to repent of. Uh, More than that, we pray that you would give us the grace that we might see how faithful you are to your people and that our faith in you might grow, and that our faithfulness to you might grow. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see how you are unfolding our own story in our day. Even as we anticipate uh, a grander unfolding of that, perhaps generations after we are gone. It's because you are all-powerful, because you are all-knowing, And because you are all love, that we can expect you to do for us what you have done for Naomi. We can expect this because you have done the most remarkable things through our Lord Jesus, who lived a perfect life of righteousness in our place and then died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and who was raised from the dead for our justification who ascended to your right hand where he is praying for us to make it all the way home, even while he waits to come in power and great glory to bring his eternal kingdom to earth. And for all of this, we give you thanks in his name, who reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's respond.